You don't know flag. You Don't Know Flat, a podcast full of stories about retro gaming, retro computing, video games, arcade games, and technology from a guy who was there and still is. My name is Rob O'Hara, but for the next 30 minutes, you can call me Flat. 187. Mid-South Wrestling. Greetings and salutations, listeners, and welcome to another episode of You Don't Know Flat. Today is August 14th, 2020, and I'm your host, Rob Flack O'Hara. On today's episode of You Don't Know Flack, we will be talking about Mid-South Wrestling. Now, before you turn the episode off, let me just warn you, this is not going to get into a lot of technical stuff about professional wrestling. This is also not going to be a history uh, lesson about professional wrestling. This is just going to be my memories of a very specific time in my life, which happens to correspond to Mid-South Wrestling. Now, before we get talking about all this fighting, I have been fighting to pull up my notes from this week's show. So while I'm trying to load those up, let's listen to a little bit of news in a segment that I call Loading Time. Loading Time. Loading Time. Loading Time. Welcome back to another episode of You Don't Know Flack. First and foremost, well, first I should say I have a ton of Loading Time topics to discuss with you this week, so hopefully this won't go on too long. But number one, I want to thank everyone who donated to the show. I I say to the show, to my shows, to my podcast. Over the past couple of weeks, I saw donations from Roy Jacobs, from Nathan Degenhart, I believe that's correct, Eric Strianassi, Strianassi? Boy, and they get harder as they go along, and a very special donation from Stephen Burt. So thank you to everyone who donated. If you did donate and I didn't announce your name, I did see the donation, but I just didn't make it. I didn't probably didn't have my document open the minute that the email came in. I'm a little scatterbrained these days. So thank you to everyone who sent me a donation and even more than that, who sent me feedback about the other episodes. I always appreciate feedback. And I super special <laughs> appreciate donations. Uh, I talked about how I was going to build a recording booth for doing my podcast, and I still plan to do that. I honestly didn't expect to get this many donations. And so what I was planning was a very cheap and somewhat shoddy looking booth made out of PVC and wrapped in moving blankets to deaden echo and, and kind of get rid of the reverb in this room. Based on the amount of donations you'll have sent in, I plan on building an actual booth like out of wood and drywall and putting real audio deadening tiles in it. And so that I've already got plans. I've already started ordering things. So that plan is moving forward. That is really the one thing that has stopped me from recording my audio books as well. I've always, as several people have mentioned to me over the years, uh, when am I going to record Commodore or Commodorkier, which we'll talk about shortly in audiobook format, and really that has been the one limitation, is simply that my audio quality is okay for podcasts, but it's just not good enough for a full feature audiobook. So that is going to allow me to do that as well. So I'm super excited about moving that forward. So thank you again to everyone who sent in donations. 
some people who sent in donations asked why I got rid of the Patreon and would I please, please bring it back. I actually had multiple people ask me to bring back my Patreon site. So I have re re enabled. Uh, I, I went through Patreon. I updated. I, I changed the tier structure a little bit. I changed the rewards a little bit and I have turned my Patreon back on. So if you are one of the people that prefers Patreon, prefers a repeating payment, I have turned Patreon back on. That link is patreon.com forward slash Rob O'Hara. Now, I have put up two payment tiers, and I wanted to make them pretty simple payment tiers because I want to be sure they're things I can deliver on. And and, uh, the lower tier is $4 a month, and that comes out to a dollar a week, and I've been releasing alternating between Sprite Castle and You Don't Know Flack once a week. So really, it's $1 a show, essentially. You will get your name mentioned on the show as a Patreon supporter. You will get a email from me when you sign up. Uh, so not a lot of rewards at that level, but you are, that money does add up for me, and that, that does go into things I've talked about before. I bought uh, a different mic stand. I bought a, a silent, clickable mouse. I've bought things for the show, and that's where that money goes. Obviously, the money right now is going into this recording booth I'm working on. I did add a, a slightly higher tier, which is $10 a month, and you'll get some other uh, fun little things. You'll get some rewards. And you'll get access to a new video show I'm working on. Now, this is not a high-production video show. I'm not a great video guy. But I tried to come up with something, and this is an idea that I've had. So it's kind of something for me. It's kind of something as a reward for those Patreon supporters. Uh, but what it is is a very brief, it will be a weekly 5- to 10-minute video. And it's literally, I will be showing off something I own. Uh, in the Patreon page, you can see it could be something brand new. It could be something super old. It might be, I think I said it could be a book. It could be a skateboard. It could be a piece of probably, uh, you know, there'll be a lot of electronics. There'll be a lot of different things I own. I just thought uh, it'd be kind of fun to show off some of those things and give those uh, higher uh, patrons, you know, a little bit of a reward. So that uh, is included in the higher tier. And those videos won't be posted anywhere else. So uh, they're not going to be on my blog. They're not going to be shared anywhere else. So it's just for those patrons. But anyway, uh, for those of you, I don't see it as, as, um, for, it's not a difference to me if you use PayPal or if you use Patreon. I think some people prefer to do a one-time donation. That's great. I love one-time donations. Some people want to set a monthly donation. So if you want to do that, Patreon is there for you. Either one of those, I appreciate them both equally much. I'm very excited about both. And I'm excited about just growing the show once again. Uh, I mentioned uh, Commodore here. And so that is, uh, I'm putting up here near the top of the headlines here in loading time, is that, you know, I wrote Commodore here and released it as part of a humble bundle, I believe is the humble bundle, a story bundle. And I never got around to adding the link to my website. So it's there now. I had a couple people ask if there were ways to purchase it. Now you can go to RobOHara.com. If you look on the left-hand side, you will see a link to Commodore here. It's right near the top, and there's a subsection for books. There's also a drop-down menu from the very top. You'll see a thing that says books, and you can get to it that way. Either way, uh, we'll lead you to a link where you can purchase uh, Commodore here in electronic format. You will be taken – it is a PayPal link. You'll be taken to PayPal. There's a link once you've paid that says Return to Merchant, and that should return you to a download page. 
That link will get you a zip file that contains Commodore in PDF, EPUB, and Mobi formats. All of them are DRM-free, so once you've bought it, you can put it on any device uh, that you own. Hopefully, you're not giving it to friends, but you know what? Uh, <laughs> such is life, right? Um, so uh, that that is how you can go get Commodore here. A couple of people have asked if I'm going to do a print version. I don't know. I'm not. I'm kind of undecided. I'll have to wait and see how many sales there are, and I have to see what kind of interest there is uh, to to see if I want to put the time into making a a print version. Right now, I'm really focused on the podcast, and I'm really focused on moving forward on my audiobook project. So I I don't know if there will be a print version. Maybe, but it certainly won't be uh, within the next few weeks. So we'll we'll see how that plays out. Let's talk about the last episode of You Don't Know Flack, where I talked about televisions, and I forgot to mention two televisions that I currently own. It's because they're not in my house. They are in storage in my workshop, and they are very unique televisions. They're so unique that I wanted to take a few minutes here to actually talk about them. Uh, I got the first of these two televisions. One is a CRT. The other is a flat screen. I got the first one at a garage sale. I went to a garage sale, and this was probably six or seven years ago, and walked up and saw something I had never seen before, which was a completely clear television. The entire casing, the outside shell of this television is made of clear see-through plastic. So you could see the CRT inside. You could see the little circuit boards, the wires, everything inside. I saw this and I thought it was the coolest thing I had ever seen. I thought, oh, I mean, it's just, I had to have it. I really didn't need it. It's small. It's a, um, probably a 13 inch CRT. It's, it's not a large television. So I talked to the owner or the, the guy running the garage sale, and I, I said, tell me about this television. And he said, it came from a prison. So inside prisons, prisoners are allowed to purchase electronics, but they have to purchase them through the prison system. And because in normal electronics, there would be opportunity for prisoners to hide contraband. It could be uh, drugs or cigarettes or weapons, who knows, they have electronics that are clear and see-through so that you cannot hide anything, easily hide anything inside them. I purchased the television immediately. It was $10. Again, I didn't know if I had a need for this or not, but I definitely wanted it. And when I got it home on the backside, I didn't notice this at the garage sale, but on the backside, there is a prisoner's number. A prisoner, I guess his his inmate number, is sketched into, not sketched, but um, like dremeled, you know, into the actual case. And I looked up that inmate in the Oklahoma prison system, and that inmate is not a nice guy. I immediately uh, took Clorox wipes and wiped out the entire television. I did not want uh, this guy's DNA on me anywhere at all. Not a nice guy, but... Uh, so I do have this television, and my idea was I purchased uh, some Commodore 64 replacement Kickstarter. There was a Kickstarter several years ago for some C64C cases, and I got one that was clear see-through. So my idea was 
to put a Commodore 64 inside this clear case. Well, now I have an Ultimate C64. I just haven't finished it yet, but I want to put that inside the clear case and hook it up to this clear television. Now, through a friend of a friend, I had a a friend's friend who had gone to prison and got out. Now, anything that you purchase in prison, you're allowed to bring with you, but you can't take it back in if you are unfortunate enough to go back into prison, I guess. Uh, he, this friend of a friend, like a family friend of a friend, had also been in prison and more recently and purchased a television. And when he came out, he brought all his things with him and unfortunately ran afoul of the law and went back to prison. And so my friend said, hey, do you have any interest in this TV? And it is a 17-inch flat-screen television. It's also clear. <laughs> and I said, you bet I do. So I have two completely see-through televisions. I'm so uh, embarrassed that I forgot to mention those on the last show because they're super cool. I really enjoy owning them. Uh, but... Um, you know, they're both so small that I don't have a big use for, but the, the flat screen one has HDMI input. So I may hook that up to the ultimate 64 when I get that project done. Uh, I did get a voicemail about, uh, televisions from last week from listener Mr. McNugget on Twitter. And, uh, he sent me a message that said when he was younger, he had a RCA television, a CRT television that when they turned it off, it would have this RGB splot in the middle of the TV that it was almost shaped like a heart, and it had red, green, and blue in there, and he was curious if I had anything like that. Now, I do remember turning off CRTs at the time and watching everything collapse into the middle into a, a bright little circle that would eventually fade away. I don't remember if it had RGB colors uh, that did that, but it's possible but uh, I just thought that was interesting that he remembered that shape, too. He also said that the tele the uh, volume on that television would just jump up and down out of nowhere. Like the it would the volume would blast all the way up and then go back down. Uh, I have had some things like that with uh, knobs, you know, that have got old over the years that the um, um, potometer, is that right? Where it gets dirty and gunky in there and then you turn it and it gets crackly and the volume jumps up and down. I had a stereo tuner uh, that kind of did that. So I don't know if that's what that was. Maybe I'll do an episode on Poltergeist. Maybe that was the, <laughs> the problem. But uh, regardless, I really enjoyed getting that voicemail. So thank you for sending that in. Uh, I will have the voicemail contact here at the end of uh, loading time. Uh, but I always love getting voicemails. And if you don't like sitting down to type out an email or anything like that, a voicemail is a, a quick way to shoot me a message like that. So thank you, Mr. McNugget, for sending that in. So last week, I mentioned this on uh, Sprite Castle, that last week I was actually on a staycation. My wife and I took a vacation. We have a certain amount. Both of us work at the same place. We have a certain amount of leave that we have to take before the end of the year. We had a cruise scheduled for last year. Um, next week is my 25th wedding anniversary. And so we were going to take a cruise to Alaska, which we were looking forward to. We've already taken one cruise to Alaska. We enjoyed it very much. But uh, then coronavirus happened, and our cruise got canceled, and we got a refund. And uh, so instead, we we just left that vacation scheduled. We took a quote-unquote staycation. We did a couple of fun things. We went to Texas to go visit Ikea. Uh, the closest Ikea to me is three to three-and-a-half-hour drive 
from me. And so we had ordered some desks online for our new offices and the, the order got canceled. The delivery got canceled. It got converted to pick up. And so we just decided to take a day road trip and drive down to Ikea. So with our, our masks on and socially distancing, we went down and did some shopping. There's a, a, a casino that's right on the border between Oklahoma and Texas that we stopped at. Uh, the casino was absolutely dead. There was nobody inside. So we were a little cautious about going in, but uh, it seemed it seemed to work out okay. So uh, that was about as exciting as our uh, vacation got. We also, I went to Enid, Oklahoma. And I went to Enid, Oklahoma because a, a friend of mine, Guy Hutchinson, who does the Drunk on Disney podcast. He, he uh, does a, a bunch of different things online. He, he does all sorts of, of uh, fun and wacky type uh, videos and, and podcasts and, and all kinds of crazy stuff. Uh, Guy Hutchinson sent me a message and said, if I ever end up in Enid, Oklahoma, he wanted me to take a picture of this place. And it is a location that is sort of fictional, but sort of not fictional. But it is a real address that is mentioned in Jurassic Park 3. Uh, as one of the, the benefactors owns a business in Enid, Oklahoma. It's such a strange kind of name drop. Uh, but we've, Enid, Oklahoma is a 90 minute drive for me. So we, again, with our vacation, looking for things to do, we drove to Enid, Oklahoma and got out. I took a selfie in front of the sign. We went to a restaurant that had outdoor seating and we ate there. It was really delicious food and we, Drove around the city a little bit. So I never, I don't think I've ever been to Enid before. So it, it was, um, uh, you know, good little day trip just to drive around. And then I just found out that, uh, uh one of my friends, uh, uh, Kurt Musgrave, who's also a listener and friend to the show, lives in Enid. I completely, I think he told me that at some point. And I just forgot it. So now we want to go back to Enid, especially once, uh, uh, maybe all this coronavirus has uh, lightened up a little bit and go back to Enid and, and maybe Kirk could show us around, show us some fun things and, uh, and we could go back and, and explore a little bit more of Enid. So, but, uh, that was about as exciting as our uh, staycation got. I also spent some time over the past week working on my 60 and one cabinet. This is an old, old arcade cabinet. I bought it at auction probably 15 years ago. It was a Buster Brothers cabinet, but I don't think they ever made a Buster Brothers cabinet. I think all Buster Brothers machines are, uh, you know, kits, like conversion kits that, that were sent out. And my cabinet used to be a joust cabinet. It was originally a joust cabinet that someone installed Buster Brothers in, so all the joust stuff is gone. Uh, there is a Williams uh, uh, power block down in the the bottom, and it's a William shape. So I, I'm relatively. It also has one button per side. I, I'm pretty confident it was a uh, joust. It seems like maybe I found a a serial number or something at one time that that proved to me it was a joust cabinet. But but regardless, there's no there's nothing joust uh, left about it now. Someone uh, completely converted it to um, Buster Brothers, and then I sold the. Uh, Buster Brothers PCB to the uh, uh, Arcadia Retrocade in Arkansas, and they have the the motherboard now. And I bought a 60-in-1 PCB to put inside there because it's JAMA compatible, just like Buster Brothers. And it has all those classics. It has Donkey Kong 1, 2, and 3. It has uh, Centipede and Millipede. It has Pac-Man, Miss Pac-Man. You know, all those, those classic kind of games. So I... Have had this cabinet for a long time. I put it in storage when all this time when we were moving, I had it in a storage unit. Uh, 
And when I went and got it, it looks like the cabinet took some sort of water damage. I don't really know what happened. But the top of the cabinet is all warped and kind of funky looking. And the bottom all the way around is split. And so it's really just not in good condition. Uh, it, it's probably too far gone to do like a full restoration on. But I don't need a full restoration. I wanted to put this cabinet out in the lobby of my movie room. And so... Uh, I've spent the last month or two working on it off and on. I got some wood filler and I, I sanded down the bottom part and I filled up what I could with wood filler, uh, just to make it look pretty good. I repainted it in kind of a uh, latex, uh, semi flat, like an eggshell black color. Uh, I got some side art, like some generic MAME side art off of, uh, I don't remember if I got it off Amazon or eBay, but, uh, um, you know, it's like this big collage with all different, um, arcade characters on there. So I put that on there and I redid the fluorescent light behind the marquee across the top. So I got everything done. I replaced the monitor. It had a old CRT monitor, not an arcade monitor, a computer CRT monitor that was pretty small. And I replaced it with a larger LCD. It's a vertical, uh, orientation. All the games are vertical. So. Um, I did that. I added a second button because, uh, there was only one button per player and a lot of the games that are on there, like, uh, kicks. Do you say kicks or do you say quicks? I say kicks. Uh, kicks uses two buttons. Uh, there were some other two button games on there. So I got everything, uh, set up and moved in here. And then the power supply died within 48 hours. And my good buddy, Rob Sherwin mailed me a replacement power supply. I was going to put it in before, and then this power supply started working again. So I thought maybe I just had a loose wire or something, but nope, power supply is bad. So now I've got to scoot it out from <laughs> away from the wall and fix the power supply. But it looks pretty good out here. I mean, it looks as good as it's going to get. You know, it's a restored beater, I call it. I mean, it's just a beater cabinet, but uh, it's okay. So I've got another main cabinet that I want to put out here next to it, and then that's Probably all I have room for right now in the uh, movie room lobby. I did see while I was buying all these parts for the arcade cabinet, I got a thing that popped up. I think it was in my Facebook feed, an ad on the side. And it was to a Boing Boing article about a new wall-mounted arcade system. I believe it's called the Polycade. And uh, it's wall-mounted. So that, I, mean, I like that design idea. It doesn't. It's not very deep, so it doesn't take up a lot of space. Here's the part I don't like. It's almost $4,000. Um, it says, and the, the body, the frame is metal. So I'm sure it's well built, but $4,000, man, that's anytime that I could buy something or a vehicle, I'm usually going to buy the vehicle. I just can't imagine spending four grand on a arcade thing. Now I will tell you that I'm at the point in my life where when I see things for sale, I start to, you know, weigh the uh, costs, uh, the, the labor that goes into it. You know, do I want to work on something for a month or do I just want to pay money? That's kind of what I did at Ikea. I bought these table desk, desktops that I thought ah, I could make those, but it seemed a lot easier to just buy them at Ikea. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I get it that buying a ready-made arcade game is, uh, uh, it's super easy and you're going to get something that's nice. It's about $4,000, man. I just couldn't justify that. So I, I thought it was interesting. I said it had a 27 inch monitor too. So, um, it looks nice, 
but not for me. So anyway, uh, that's all the show notes that I have for this week. If you have any feedback about this or any other episode of the show, you can email me directly at Rob O'Hara at robohara.com. You can join the conversation on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash robcasts. Follow me on Twitter at Commodore or leave me a message on my podcast hotline at 405-486-YDKF. And finally, thank you again to everyone who bought me a virtual beer or virtual meal, uh, which is the PayPal links that are on podcast.robohara.com. So if you want to do that, a PayPal donation or to sign up for Patreon, go to that website and you'll find the links right there. It looks like I'm done fighting with these show notes, so let's get started talking about this type of fighting, Mid-South Wrestling. I want to start this episode by talking about a phrase, and that phrase is, this is where I came in. Now, this is a phrase that my dad used to use regularly. Uh, I heard him say it throughout my entire life. Um... The history of that phrase comes from the 1920s, back when movie houses would show the same movie over and over all day long. So the minute the movie stopped, they would just restart it. And so there weren't scheduled start times for movies back then. So you would just show up and start watching the movie, and then you would watch it to the end, and then you would keep watching the beginning until you got to the part where you came in and people would say, well, this is where I came in and they would leave. Now, my dad was born in the late 1940s. And when he was a kid, he says he remembers going to uh, the movies on Saturday and watching cartoons. And they would show cartoons at the movie theater. And it was the exact same thing. There would be a certain amount of cartoons that would get looped. And at the end, you would say, this is where I came in and he would leave. And so um, there is a long, rich history of professional wrestling. I'm not going to be talking about that today. I'm going to talk about a very specific brand or uh, company, I guess, of, uh, of wrestling, which was Mid-South Wrestling. And I can honestly say that this is where I came in. This is where I learned about wrestling. And then we will talk about when I uh, got out <laughs> when I left, uh, watching professional wrestling. So, um, I don't remember wrestling before mid South wrestling. So this is the earliest professional wrestling that I ever remember watching. And I vaguely remember watching it with my grandma, my grandma, my mom's mom was, uh, uh, grandma McCrack and we called her granny crack and which was super awesome when, Clash of the Titans came out and I had a granny crack and that was super cool. But uh, my grandma was a big fan of roller derby and on our local UHF channel, channel 34, they would show an hour of professional wrestling followed by an hour of roller derby. And so this is really one of my earliest memories of watching professional wrestling was with my granny crack. And now again, she was a bigger fan of roller derby than wrestling, but you know, she would turn it on and it would be on and she'd be waiting for a roller derby to come on. So when I would go over there and spend the night, we would uh, get up Saturday morning and I think it was on maybe nine o'clock or 10 o'clock, maybe 10 o'clock that uh, uh, professional wrestling would come on. Now, where I really started watching professional wrestling was at my next door neighbor's house, a kid who was named Doug. Now, Doug is one year older than me. And he is the youngest of three boys. In fact, I grew up next to a house 
that had three boys and across the street from four boys. So all you had to do was walk out of your house with a football or a soccer ball or a baseball in hand, and you would have an instant game. <laughs> there were always enough people would come out of their house to uh, immediately play some sort of sport. So um Doug was probably the coolest kid in my neighborhood, like the most popular. He was the type of kid that people would um, make offers or bargains to try to get him to come to their house. You know, I remember other kids saying, Hey, Doug, do you want to ride skateboards? And I would say, Oh, Doug, I have um, got a new game on my computer. And someone else would say, Hey, Doug, do you want to do this? And so he had his choice of different people who, whatever kid he wanted to play with, you know, and Doug was into professional wrestling. So suddenly I was into professional wrestling and I, this is pretty young. This is probably, um, 1980, 1981. I'm like eight or nine years old. Now Doug's house, which again was next door to my house that I grew up in. If you look in the front, they had a big bay window in the front that looked into their dining room. But if you look through the dining room, you could see the living room and all the way on the far wall was their television. Uh, so if you looked in through the bay window, if you looked hard enough, you could see the television. You could also see the back of the living room couch. And so when kids would sit on the living room couch, you could see the tops of their heads. So I remember many times going over there and watching wrestling and then other kids would start showing up. People would come and knock on the door and Doug would say, Hey, slide down, slide down. So they can't see we're in here. So everybody would slink down on the couch and hide the top of your head. So that when you looked in, it looked like an empty room. It also looked like a television that was showing wrestling <laughs> to an empty room. Uh, so I always thought this was a really sneaky thing until they did it to me. I remember going over there and knocking on the door and looking through the window and nobody answering the door for me, but I could see wrestling was on and it was time to watch wrestling. So I would just walk around to the back of the house because there was a big sliding door and then you could look in and see the front of the couch and see everybody there hiding from you and then they would have to let you in. Uh, and usually they would give you a lecture about how rude it was uh, to come around and, and um, discover that they were hiding from you. <laughs> um, but uh, so Doug's house was kind of like the place where people went to watch wrestling. Saturday morning, four or five neighborhood neighborhood kids would go over there and uh, watch wrestling for an hour, you know. Now, as kids, this was the time when everybody, I mean, all the kids that I knew thought wrestling was real. We There was that rumor that wrestling might be fake, but we didn't necessarily believe that. We thought that wrestling was a real thing. Now, we thought there might be certain things like, oh, he's not really kicking him in the teeth as hard as he could. But as far as the results of a match or whatever, we really thought that professional wrestling was not scripted at all. There's a, there's always a, a uh, argument over when people say, is it real? And then, you know, if you tell a wrestler it's not real, he's liable to body slam you. So they are real athletes. It's just is, I, you know, it really was the first reality television, right? Like is reality television real? Well, they're real people and they're really doing things. It's also scripted and there's a lot of interaction with uh, the, the directors and script writers and, and showrunners and things like that. So um, are, are professional wrestlers real athletes? Absolutely. They they are some of the fittest people, fittest athletes. I mean, they, their bodies just go through amazing amounts of uh, 
uh, of punishment, you know, but they also, the outcome of the, the matches are usually scripted and predetermined. So that was the argument of whether or not uh, it was real. Now, um, we would watch wrestling and we would have our favorite wrestlers. And I'm going to talk about all my favorite wrestlers here in a little bit. But then when we were done, we were all, you know, pre-teenage boys, early teen boys. I mean, 11, 12, maybe. And then we would want to wrestle. So uh, in the out behind Doug's house, he had what we called the back garage. It was a two-car garage that was separate from their house. And there was a pool table out there. There's some other stuff out there. But there was all these old mattresses. I don't know where they got these mattresses. And, um, you know, sometimes we would sleep out in the back garage and we would sleep on those mattresses. And now I think how gross that must have been. <laughs> I mean, we'd put our sleeping bags on top of it. But uh, still, there's no telling what was in those mattresses. But we would pull those out and put two mattresses side by side. And suddenly that became a wrestling ring. And so we would run around and do all the, the moves, not really do them, but pretend to clothesline each other or pretend to, to punch and kick each other. And then you would fall on the mattress, you know, uh, sometimes we would pile the mattresses really high. We would scoot them over by a tree and someone would like jump into a flying suplex out of the tree and land on the mattresses. It's really amazing. Nobody got seriously hurt. Um, but remember me saying that they were all, Doug was the youngest of three boys and my friends, Matt and Mitchell, they were the youngest of four boys across the street. So occasionally the older brothers would show up and then they would show us all the painful wrestling moves. I remember, um, there was a, a move that this one guy did called the iron claw, a wrestler, and he would just you know, basically just use his hand like a claw and just grab your stomach. And of course, these wrestlers are like, oh, I can't, you know, get out of this move, which is seems silly. But I remember an older kid grabbing my stomach like that. And I thought I was going to die. <laughs> like he's probably just grabbing my intestines or something, you know. And uh, I definitely remember them like showing us how to do the figure four lock where they would lock our legs up. Uh, and then they would just do it till we screamed and then, you know, and then do it for three more seconds and then let us go. So there was a lot of that going on. But uh um, so yeah, we, we definitely, um, you know what, there was another, one of the kids, his favorite move was just to sit on you. And so I remember like being on this mattress and then having him, uh, like grab me and throw me down and then just sitting on me. And I just remember, I was like, I'm going to die. Like I can't breathe. I was just crying. Um, so good times, good times playing wrestling, uh, in, in the, uh, on mattresses in the back garage. So all of this wrestling, this kid thing that we were doing was inspired by wrestling, and it was inspired by a very specific brand of wrestling called Mid-South Wrestling. Now, uh, again, if you're not into wrestling, I'm not going to go into super detail. Some of this is just interesting to me. Um, in the old days, so, it, you know, and over the past hundred years, wrestling was all managed by territories. So there was a Northwest Territory. There was all these different territories and wrestling groups stayed. It's almost like gangs, like they stayed in their little territory and they didn't travel around. They didn't go to other people's territories uh, to compete. And so there was one that was called uh, the NWA Tri-State Territory that started in the 50s. And that covered Oklahoma, Louisiana, and Mississippi. So that was its little section. There was a wrestler in that group called Bill Watts. His name was Bill Watts. And he 
basically bought the part of wrestling that was in the tri-state wrestling er uh, territory, and he renamed it Mid-South Wrestling. And he lived, his headquarters was in Bixby, Oklahoma. So that was in 1979. So we probably discovered wrestling a couple of years later after that, maybe 81, something like that. But uh, that's when Mid-South Wrestling was formed. Um, he withdrew, this Bill Watts, he withdrew Mid-South Wrestling from NWA uh, because he didn't want to have overlap of those territories. But NWA, the tri-state territory, closed in 1982. And so that's kind of when Mid-South Wrestling expanded into this three areas. So it really wasn't until 1982, I guess, that it came to Oklahoma, uh, where they actually performed in Oklahoma. So um, I'm kind of jumping forward in the timeline of things and uh, – Again, it is very brief, but, uh, in 1985, all of a sudden there was a land grab because of cable television. So up until the mid eighties, wrestlers and wrestling promotions were totally content with being these small territory groups that performed in two or three states and they would travel back and forth in those, uh, their little area to perform. And occasionally they would meet with other wrestling organizations and have fights between the two, but but they didn't travel around the country. But all of a sudden, cable television gave people this nationwide audience. And uh, Vince McMahon, who, if you're remotely familiar with uh, wrestling, you're, even if you're not, you may know the name. He is the uh, president and owner of WWE, which used to be uh, WWF, but the World Wrestling uh, Federation, World Wrestling Entertainment. Um, Vince McMahon made a deal with Ted Turner to provide him a weekly show. But what he started sending him were these old clips. It wasn't like new wrestling matches. It was old clips of, of, uh, you know, matches that had already taken place. And Ted Turner got really mad about it. And so basically he offered Bill Watts and mid South wrestling a show instead. So mid South wrestling in 1985 went from my little local wrestling thing to suddenly it was on cable television in 1985. Now Vince McMahon, I guess went and did some sort of backdoor offer. He bought a different territory and then he bought the slot out from under mid South wrestling. So there's a lot of details. If you go to Wikipedia, there's, I mean, if you scroll, there's 10 pages of history about all this. But what the gist of it is, is that to compete nationally, Mid-South Wrestling changed its name in 1986 to Universal Wrestling Federation to make it sound like a bigger company. But uh, the problem was that these other companies that had made deals on cable were growing much more quickly. And so uh, the WWF owned by Vince McMahon started buying other wrestling territories out from underneath uh, the NWA and, um, and got this deal brokered with TBS because he had more, more, uh, uh, more coverage. And so there was um, nothing left really for mid South wrestling, which again, at that time, uh, had changed its name to Universal Wrestling. And so they ended up, uh, selling to, uh, Jim Crockett Productions, who owned the other major wrestling thing. And he renamed it. He grouped that with some other things and formed WCW. So if you know anything about wrestling from the late eighties, early nineties, there were two big, 
wrestling productions. There was WWF and there was WCW. So, but that's kind of how they came about. They came to be. It was all about uh, these battles for uh, viewing rights on cable television. And as they grew, they continued to just buy these smaller, uh, you know, different uh, uh, federations up. And that's basically what happened to Mid South Wrestling. So, um, again. Mid-South Wrestling was my local wrestling. It was in based in Oklahoma, and they toured around Oklahoma and uh, Louisiana. And then there was other – sometimes they went to Texas, but there was another group in Texas, and so they would come to Oklahoma. And so it all kind of got mixed together. But uh, um, So that was my local wrestling before it became national wrestling. Now, uh, I'm going to run through a list of some I, – I looked on Wikipedia at some of the famous people – that uh, were involved in Mid-South Wrestling. If you're not in wrestling, you may not remember any of these names, but if you are familiar with later wrestling, some of the people from Mid-South Wrestling went on to be big stars in WCW and WWE. So the announcer in Mid-South Wrestling was Jim Ross, who is still an announcer while he was, uh, I don't know if he's still announcing, I I hate to say that, but uh, I know he had a, a stroke at some point, um, but he was, that was our announcer. So, uh, we always watched, uh, uh, Jim Ross. Now, um, you know, I wrote down here, I don't know, this is kind of out of place, but I, I wrote that, um, uh, some weeks it seemed to be about tag teams and some weeks it seemed to be about singles. And I think there were certain federations that specialized in each of those, but eventually Mid-South Wrestling just did both. It kind of, uh, mixed it all together. Now, Probably the most famous people to come out of Mid-South Wrestling, or especially at the time, were the Von Erichs. The dad was Fritz Von Erich, and he was an old-school wrestler, and he had multiple kids that all became wrestlers. And I read this uh, Wikipedia article about the Von Erichs, and it was super sad. It said by the time Fritz Von Erich died, five of his six children had already died. Now, the biggest one and the first one when I was a kid, I remember this happening in wrestling, was David Von Erich. So there were multiple. There was Kerry and Kevin Von Erich. They were the two main ones. And then David Von Erich was the third. So at first it was just um, Kerry would do solo, Kevin would do solo, and then they were tag team. And then they got David and they could do these three-on-three matches. Um, but they went on tour in Tokyo and David died of this weird thing that they said, oh, it must be a stomach thing or whatever. But since then, every wrestler says it was a drug overdose. But the family has already, it's always kind of been kept kind of hush-hush, and it's never been officially stated it was a drug overdose. But David died at the age of 25, um, and uh, it, it was super sad. And then um, uh, Kevin was the one that was known for the uh, Iron Claw. He did the Iron Claw. He would do this thing called the body scissors where he would wrap your body up with your legs and squeeze people till they uh, uh, submitted. But um, Mike Von Erich, Chris Von Erich, and Carrie Von Erich all took their own lives. It was so, like, one after another. It was, you know, bouts of depression. And, um, you know, the saddest, I think, was Carrie, who you know, basically said, like, I want to go be back with my, I feel my brother's calling me, he told someone, and um, he he took his own life uh, on the ground where one of his other brothers, or where his brother was either buried or had died. I mean, it's just 
super sad. Uh, there, there's actually a thing called the Von Erich family curse. Um, and, uh, I guess, um, uh, Kevin is the only one that's still alive, but all the other ones have, uh, passed away. So super sad. But the Von Erichs were like the golden children of wrestling. They were the good guys. They were kind of like if Hulk Hogan had three or four brothers, that's what it would have been like. I mean, just the super, the biggest stars. Now their enemies were the fabulous Freebirds, and the biggest thing I remember about them is they had this theme song called Bad Street USA. And they would come out, and there was three of them, Michael Hayes, Terry Gordy, and Buddy Roberts, and they were the the fabulous Freebirds. So they were the three guys that were always against the the Von Erics. Um, there was the Wild Samoans. There was a lot of, like, racial stereotypes that went on in 80s wrestling, and I, I don't know that they do that, but there were these uh, two guys, and they were from the Isle of Samoa. And um, I kind—I mean, I do remember them, but the other thing I remember about them is their manager was uh, Captain Lou Albano. So he would—he would bring the Wild Samoans to the ring, and that was always uh, goofy. Uh, there was a lot of uh, managers, you know, that would have different groups. There was a uh, Skandar Akbar. He was a uh, supposedly like from Saudi Arabia, and he had a group of wrestlers called Devastation Incorporated, and they were all bad guys. You know, there was. Um, one man gang and, and Kamala and, and uh, he had all the bad guys. And uh, I, you know what? I got some stuff here about Skandar Akbar in a minute, but um, then there were two other tag teams that would, uh, well, actually three tag teams, but two that were always battling each other. One was the rock and roll express. And that was uh, Ricky and Robert. And they would come out and they both had super sweet mullets. I wanted a mullet so bad because the rock and roll express, and their theme song was ELO's uh, Rock and Roll is King. They would come out and um, they would always fight the Midnight Express, which was uh, Bobby Eaton and Dennis Condroy. And um, the only thing I really remember about the Midnight Express is that their manager was Jim Cornette. And Jim Cornette was this guy, you may have seen stereotypes uh, of him or you may know who he is. But he had on those 80s glasses that like faded, you know, and he always carried a tennis racket. And sometimes he would bash people with his, his tennis racket and stuff. Uh, but that was Jim Cornette and the Midnight Express. They would always fight the Rock and Roll Express. Um, and then there was the Blade Runners, which was another group of uh, wrestlers. And they were like super punk looking. They had black eye paint and they spiked their hair up and they had rat tails. Uh, one guy had blonde hair. One guy had black hair. Um, and so they had the, these, um, uh, like it was blade runners, but what was interesting is that, um, one of them went on to become sting who was a super famous wrestler. And the other one went on to become the ultimate warrior. So both of these guys made it big time. But of course, back when I was watching them, they were, you know, the blade runners, um, some of the other wrestling names that I wrote down, gentlemen, Chris Adams, uh, he's another one that, um, uh, he had overdosed and then got into a brawl with somebody a year later and he got shot and killed. There's so much sadness in professional wrestling. These guys have had hard lives. A lot of them have been, uh, you know, addicted to steroids or abuse steroids, and then they get addicted to painkillers and they've just had really rough lives. So, um, th there's not like a lot of super happy endings to a lot of these guys' career. 
Skandar Akbar, I mentioned he was the manager of Devastation Incorporated. He wore the big uh, Arabic, um, gosh, what's the name of that? Um, Kafia? I think that's right. I hope, I hope that's right. I think it's called a Kafia. It's like the big square uh, cotton scarf, and then they put the headband around it to hold it on. So he would wear that and, and sunglasses. Um, I looked it up and he was born in Texas. <laughs> um, but he, he died in 2010 at the age of 75. Uh, so he, he went on for a long time, but, uh, yes, yeah, Skandar Akbar. There, like, again, there was a lot of these racial stereotype, uh, or some racial and some like country associated, uh, stereotypes. Of course, Andre the Giant was big. He was always would show up in Mid-South Wrestling. King Kong Bundy, Jim Cornette, I talked about with the, uh, uh, tennis racket, Ted DiBiase, he was a bad guy. Hacksaw Jim Duggan. Let me tell you about Hacksaw Jim Duggan. He was a big old boy and he looked like a country kind of guy, big beard, crazy hair. He would wear overalls. I met Hacksaw Jim Duggan when my wife and I, we had that mobile home and we moved it. We had the mobile home moved and we had to go to the mobile home park and they had to go get axles. Uh, to go and put underneath the trailer. And while we were there, um, we went into the office and there were two giant dudes hanging out. I mean, big guys. And, uh, the owner said, Hey, can you guys go get, uh, axles to move this thing? And they went, Oh yeah, or whatever. And then when they left, the one guy goes, Hey, did you ever watch wrestling? And I go, yeah. He goes, that's, um, Hacksaw Jim Duggan or whatever. I go, what? Really? And when he came back, I saw him and sure enough, it was, I just said hi to him, you know? And, um, my dad met him, uh, at a different, like totally different event. He met him, uh, he came to my dad's work for, uh, not as a promotion thing, just a visitor with someone else. And my dad said he had this giant belt and on the back of it, it said hacksaw, <laughs> which I think is totally cool. Uh, hacksaw Jim Duggan. I liked him. Uh, Ric Flair, you might uh, know he went on uh, to big fame. There was the great Kabuki. Now he was cool. The great Kabuki was like a Kung Fu master and his hair would come down and cover his face. So you couldn't really see his face. And he always cheated. He would breathe like green smoke into people's faces and blind them and do all kinds of, uh, mean and nasty things. So he was really cool. Um, he reminds me of two other guys. One is Kamala, the Ugandan warrior. And unfortunately, Kamala passed away this past week. Kamala had a very rough life after wrestling. He had diabetes. He lost a leg or both of his legs. He has not been in good health, and um, he did just pass away. But Kamala looked like a a 350-pound witch doctor. He would paint his face up, and he would have the big witch doctor mask and come in and and, um, I've seen interviews with him. He's super nice, intelligent guy, but you know, all these guys were just picking characters to do, you know? So he was a uh, Kamala. And then there was also the missing link that reminds me of who had, had shaved his head except for this big top knot. And his, his move was he would grab his hair and then headbutt you <laughs> like, like he's hitting you with his own head. Um, junkyard dog. I liked, um, he would, would come out and he would wear like a dog collar and a chain and stuff. He was cool. I'm kind of skipping through the rest of it. There was leaping Lanny Poffo, who I remember. And, um, I remember thinking leaping Lanny, uh, leaping Lanny was like the dumbest name, leaping Lanny Poffo. Um, and I, I looked him up on Wikipedia and it said 
also the real-life younger brother of Macho Man Randy Savage, <laughs> which I had no idea. So we're talking about two brothers uh, at the family reunion. You're like, oh, here's my sons. This is the Macho Man. Yo, the Macho Man. And this is my other son, Leaping Lanny, who I just imagine would just leap away like a, <laughs> like a frog. Boink. Um, there was a group of Russian wrestlers. There was Nikolai Volkov, who uh, said was uh, actually Croatian and grew up in Yugoslavia. But, you know, it was the mid-80s. We were uh, fighting. We had the Cold War fighting with Russia. So uh, he became a Russian character. And there was also Nikita Koloff, which was another Russian that he teamed up with, uh, who I looked up. And uh, his name is Nelson Scott Simpson. And he was born in Minnesota. So not very Russian. Uh, and the last wrestler on my list was Dr. Death Steve Williams, who was a local favorite. Because he uh, actually played, um, was he a guard? Yeah, he was a guard uh, for the University of Oklahoma. So for our local college team, he was a starter for four years. So everybody knew who Steve Williams was. And I guess when he was younger, he also uh, was in college wrestling and had a facial injury and he had to wear a mask, and so somebody nicknamed him Dr. Death because of this mask, and he kept that nickname. So when he was at wrestling, he was Dr. Death Steve Williams. So uh, he, he was always a local favorite. Now, so we got all this stuff going on with Mid-South Wrestling, but one of the things about these local uh, wrestling federations is that they would travel around and play, or not play, but have events in local towns. And so Mid-South Wrestling, every other month, would come to Oklahoma City, to the Cox Convention Center, and I went several times to go watch Mid-South Wrestling Live. Um, I remember tickets being either $3 or $4, and that was for the bloody nose seats, like all the way at the top of the Cox Convention Center. But what would happen is they really only sold two kind of seats. One was ringside, and the other one was kind of general admission, you know, the, the nosebleed section. So we would go up there, and then the minute it started, we would just scoot all the way down up against, you know, right to the very bottom. And nobody cared because it would be, you know, really empty. I mean, these are not events. These type of events were not selling, you know, 10,000, 20,000 tickets. They might have a 1,000, you know. Uh, so we would scoot all the way down. I remember one event I got to go to was – uh, the Rock and Roll Express versus the Midnight Express and um, Doug's mom took us. And I remember Doug asking when the Midnight Express came out, could we flip them off? And she said, yes. So we all got to give the Midnight Express the middle finger, <laughs> which we thought was really naughty. And um, I, I remember my biggest memory of going and watching that was watching them set up and later tear down the ring. And when I was a kid, I thought a wrestling ring was a big square, you know, but when you watch them put it up, it's much more like a trampoline, right? You have the posts, you have this uh, canvas that is stretched really tight and, uh, and you could go underneath it. Like they have these little trestles and stuff, but you could crawl underneath a, a wrestling ring from one side to the other. And I remember one guy from the Midnight Express got underneath the ring and was hiding and then when a guy from the Rock and Roll Express uh, came over to the side, he, like, got out from under the ring and reached up and grabbed his leg and, and, and tripped him. And, of course, we all told the referee, but unfortunately, referees were known for not seeing uh, the cheaters. And the referee did not listen to our uh, yells from the uh, nosebleed section. So 
Um, but I definitely saw, went to Mid-South Wrestling at least half a dozen times when I was a kid. Uh, it was great fun. We would, we would go cheer, cheer for the good guys and boo the bad guys. Uh, and it was just a lot of fun. I have a lot of great memories of that. Now, uh, in 1985, there was a convenience store across the street from my neighborhood. My neighborhood, Sun Valley, is a enclosed loop that is six blocks, and there's the, the only entrance, the only entrances, um, go out to the south. So there are no through streets. So there was never no through traffic that went through my neighborhood. But, it was far enough outside of town that there was nowhere you could go to. It opened up literally to a road where the speed limit was 50 miles an hour. So you couldn't ride your bikes anywhere. You couldn't walk anywhere. The only thing that was in walking or skateboarding or bike riding distance from my house was the convenience store that was across 10th Street. So we would go over to the convenience store. When we were kids, we'd ride our bikes down there. And we would take our money and buy candy and stuff. Later, when I was older, I would take my skateboard and I, and they had, um, a couple of, uh, curbs off to the side where we would ollie over curbs and, and practice grinding and doing stuff like that. So, uh, we would always go there, but in the back of the convenience store, they had a few arcade games and they changed over time. I remember there was track and field is the one I remember really well. Uh, and they also had Shinobi later on, but in 1985, they got Matt Mania. <laughs> Matt Mania was an arcade game released by Taito in 1985. That was professional wrestling. And so you were uh, a wrestler named Dynamite Tommy. Now, I didn't know this at the time, but it was based on a real wrestler named the Dynamite Kid. Um, the Dynamite Kid was in different wrestling federations that, uh, that was not Mid-South Wrestling. Uh, he did a lot of uh, Japanese wrestling. He was in something called Stampede Wrestling. So I never saw him as a kid, but it was based on a real wrestler. In fact, your name is um, the uh, a Dynamite Tommy, um, but the Dynamite Kid's real first name was Thomas or Tommy. So that's obviously who it was based off. So uh, in the game, you fight five different wrestlers, and then once you have beat the fifth wrestler, you get the title, and then you just keep going through the wrestlers uh, until you, you end up losing. But the first one that you fight is the Insane Warrior, who looks just like Road Warrior Animal. It's one of the the wrestlers uh, that I grew up watching. And so we were like, oh, yeah, Insane Warrior is supposed to be one of the Road Warriors. Um, and then the second guy that you fight is Karate Fighter, and he looks just like Kabuki. Um, so I remember just being so excited playing this game and thinking it was all Mid-South wrestlers. Now, it wasn't really. Um, the third one was Coco Savage and... He was actually based on a wrestler named Bobo Brazil, who is a uh, African American guy who wore like a big, um, uh, like a, a lion skin thing, you know. But uh, we always thought he was supposed to be like Kamala, but I guess I guess he's really not. And then there's the Piranha, who is a luchador, and he is based on a, another actual wrestler that I wasn't aware of. And then the last guy was named Golden Hulk. Now I guess. Uh, and the foreign version of the game, 
it's based on a real wrestler named Bruiser Brody, who I was not aware of. But when it came to the U.S., they renamed him Golden Hulk to capitalize on Hulk Hogan. So uh, it kind of looks like Hulk Hogan, but if you've ever seen uh, Bruiser Brody, it looks just like Bruiser Brody. Even He has the same boots on and everything. So, man, oh, man, did I spend a lot of time going up to the store to play me some Matt Mania. I take my quarters and go up there and play it. Matt Mania to this day is one of my favorite arcade games. And as I've, I've told this story before on other podcasts, when I started going to arcade auctions, Matt Mania is the first arcade game that I ever bought at an auction. So I owned a Matt Mania game. Now the problem with Matt Mania as a game is, uh, it's kind of like Double Dragon in the way that it's presented in 3D perspective, but the sprites are actually 2D. And so what that allows you to do is to go behind the bad guy. And when he comes up to your plane, you can already be punching. So it's very easy uh, to win the title on Matt Mania. And really, you can just keep playing forever, ever until you make a minor mistake. And then and then uh, your opponent will eventually capitalize on it. But it's a pretty easy game. I still like it. I still play it from time to time. It's one of those games that makes me think I'm good because it's easy. <laughs> Uh, and so that's why I like playing it. And then, um, a couple years after that was a game that came out on the Commodore 64. Actually in 87, it was released on the 64 and the Atari ST. And then in 1989, it was on the Amiga and DOS, but that game was micro league wrestling. This is one of the strangest wrestling games I have ever played. It is a turn-based strategy wrestling game. And the way the game works is, uh, there are, the original came with two different matches. Uh, on the front side of the disc was Hulk Hogan versus uh, Macho Man, Randy Savage. And on the back side was uh, Hulk Hogan versus Mr. Wonderful, which is Paul Orndorff, who is from Mid-South Wrestling. And so you put in the disc, whichever match you want to play, and it asks you, what move do you want to perform? So you've got Hulk Hogan on one side and uh, macho man and it's digitized pictures of the wrestlers. And it will say, what do you want to do? Like you want to do a leg drop. He wants to do an arm bar. And then it sits there and thinks it figures out the odds. And then it will say success. And then it loads this really long thing. And it will show you a digitized version of that match, but like of that move happening, but it'll only be like three or four pictures. It's really not good animation. And of course the Commodore 64, I mean, it's, it's like, you know, low resolution and only a couple of colors like grayscale. So it's, it's not a great game. And then it takes a couple of minutes to load between every move. So it is, it is not a good game. Um, they did release these, uh, expansion discs for it. There was another one with, uh, Randy Savage versus the Honky Tonk Man. And Hacksaw Jim Duggan, again, another Mid-South wrestler versus uh, King Harley Race. So there were some other ones that were released later as well. Um, and then there were different matches, I guess, released for the Amiga and DOS versions. But um, uh, again, not a good, not a good game, but we played it because that's what we had and, and we liked wrestling, you know. Um, I don't really remember any event specifically that made me quit watching wrestling. It was like so many other things in my life. And I talk about my holy trifecta, which was a year, a year, and a year. Each one of these were a year apart. But, um, you know, I got into breakdancing. The next year I got into ninjas. And the next year I got into skateboarding. So between that stuff and playing on the computer, 
I guess it just fell out of watching wrestling, you know. Um, one of the things that I would have to say that I won't say soured me on wrestling, but just kind of made it less cool was when I realized that Mid-South Wrestling was my local wrestling. Like all those guys were in Oklahoma, in this area, and wrestling. And when it became this big thing on cable and everybody knew about Hulk Hogan and everybody knew about Macho Man and everybody was into WWF or WCW, once everybody was into it, it didn't really interest me anymore, you know? So I liked when Mid-South Wrestling was more of a local thing. And I'm, I'm, you know, glad that some of those guys went on to uh, find fame in, in bigger uh, wrestling franchises. But, yeah, that, that was kind of, it, it made it less interesting for me. Now, I will fast forward and tell you one story that I had a uh, another friend who was really into wrestling. And he continued his love of wrestling all through uh, the 80s, the 90s. And uh, in the early 2000s, this is the summer of 2002, he asked me if I wanted to go to a WWF show at the Cox Convention Center. Now, I really just wasn't that into wrestling, but, you know, I said, if you could get good seats, I would go. And so he bought tickets and he ended up getting front row seats two and three. So he asked me how those seats sounded. I said, it sounds pretty amazing. Not only were we on the front row, but we were on the front row that faces the camera that's on the entire thing. So I have a VHS tape recording of that night every time. So there are, there are guys walking around with cameras around the ring shooting, uh, footage. When they cut to the stationary camera that's showing across the, uh, um, you know, the entire ring, I'm on TV. I was on TV for a couple of hours. Like I was on TV the entire time that the show was on. Uh, I thought, you know, when we were there, I thought, I wonder if you're going to be able to see us, but you could see me for two hours. It was a really fun event. Um, this was kind of the era with like, um, who was there? Hulk Hogan was there. Um, Jim McMahon, Kurt Angle, Chris Benoit, the undertaker, Paul Bearer. It was that kind of era of wrestling. So it's kind of fun that, I mean, I think of that as being new wrestling now, which is funny because it's 20 years old. I mean, a lot of people see that as, you know, classic wrestling, but to me, that's still kind of the new. I, I, I didn't really watch wrestling after that. So, um, just, just kind of grew out of it, I guess. Now I will mention, um, one other thing about wrestling. And that was around that same time, 2002, late 2001 and then 2002. A game came out for the PlayStation 2. It was on PlayStation 2, Xbox, and GameCube called Legends of Wrestling. Uh, and there were three games. There was Legends of Wrestling, Legends of Wrestling 2, and then the last one is called Showdown Legends of Wrestling. And there, um, it was just Xbox and PlayStation 2, no GameCube. Um, that was actually the last game that was published by Acclaim before they filed bankruptcy. So that is the very last Acclaim title. Um, the thing, uh, what Legends of Wrestling is, is it is a, was a then modern wrestling game that featured all classic wrestlers. I looked up the roster list. Here's some of the people that are in the game. Of course, I mean, I remember it from playing it too. 
Uh, Jake the Snake Roberts, Nikolai Volkov, Sting, Ultimate Warrior, Road Warriors, The Iron Sheik, Mr. USA, Tony Atlas, Ted DiBiase, all the guys that I mentioned from this episode, King Kong Bundy, uh, Kevin and Kerry Von Erich, all the Von Erichs are in the earlier ones, and then the last one just has Kerry and Kevin. Uh, Dr. Death Steve Williams, Andre the Giant, Hacksaw Jim Duggan, Paul Orndorff, uh, Captain Lou Alpano's even in the game. So it was really a fun game because you had modern graphics, but it had all those classic wrestlers that I grew up watching. And so that was, uh, uh, you know, a really fun game for us to revisit. But that's about as far, I guess, I would say that's where I came in, right? Like, like I got to go full circle. I got to see all my old wrestlers again on a modern thing. And then that was kind of it for me. That's, that's where I checked out. So that's a good place to wrap up this episode of You Don't Know Flack. Again, uh, thank you for tuning in, listening. Thank you for those of you that uh, sent me donations. I really appreciate that. Again, you can go check out uh, podcast.robohara.com uh, where you can find links to all my shows. You can also find uh, links to the uh, Patreon and the PayPal links. Uh, if you have comments about this episode or any episode, you can email me directly at Rob O'Hara at robohara.com. You can always join in on the conversation on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash robcast. Follow me on Twitter at Commodore or leave me a message on my podcast hotline at 405-486-YDKF. That wraps up another episode of You Don't Know Flack. So, again, thanks for tuning in. Next uh, Thursday night at midnight will be another episode of Sprite Castle and then another episode of You Don't Know Flack after that. Thanks a lot for listening. Eight great wrestling matches, 22 top stars this Friday, Friday, July 20th, 8 o'clock. Sam Houston Coliseum, a six-man tag team war, ladies and gentlemen. It'll be Hacksaw Jim Duggan and the Fantastics going against the Midnight Express. And the Midnight Express will have as their partner, he will be the third man of the team, Jim Cornette in wrestling tights. That's worth the price of admission alone. But if Hacksaw Jim Duggan gets his hands on the manager, we may have seen him for the very last time. We'll talk to these men, but first let's hear from a very concerned Jim Cornette. All right, I'm going to be honest with you people. I am scared, and I'm going to be honest with you people. I did try to get out of this match, but there wasn't anything I could do. They pushed it through. And so I'm going to be in wrestling tights. I'm going to be in a six-man tag this Friday night in Houston. And standing across the ring from me is going to be a big 300-pound goon that hates my guts, that wants to break my neck, and in five seconds could do more gruesome things to my body than you've ever seen in a Frankenstein movie. And I'm talking about Hacksaw Duggan. Just because he went to sleep in the Superdome and let all those people down, just because he took another nap at ringside last time in Houston in that match with the Guerreros, he blames me for it. And he wants to get at me. Now, I'm not too worried about the Fantastics because they look like a couple of male strippers or maybe the board of directors of a massage parlor. But Duggan would cripple me if he got the chance. So for the last week, my mother arranged to fly me to Hollywood, and I've been training personally with Richard Simmons. Richard and I have done everything together. Believe me, I'm ready for an athletic contest, but Dennis and Bobby will protect me from you, Duggan. You'll never get your hands on me in Houston.